the SitePen Podcast for developers who can't JavaScript good and want to learn to do other things good too. Look at that, 15 episodes in, and I have remembered that we have that tagline that I never, ever, ever say. So that happened. That's a thing. Um, joining me. Hey, hey, how's it going? Um, that, that <laughs> is the first person I was going to actually introduce because I always do him last. Paul Shannon. Yay, first this time. Hello. <laughs> and then joining me as well, the ever-eager Nick Nisi. I'm just happy to be here. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, um, Neil had a baby, and now all of a sudden he can't do anything. Um, I don't know if that's actually related to why he's not here today, but he just told us he's not going to be here. Um, he's at work. He's just not going to be here. So he doesn't love you as much as we do. Um, audience, oh, that's just how it goes. Um, this episode is brought to you by the um, Neil's baby. Um, because without Neil here, we are free to do whatever we want. And he doesn't have to talk over us like he always does. Wait, that, that's me, isn't it? I'm the one who always talks over. <sighs> yeah, but you edit it out, right? Oh, yeah. like So carefully. Most, most of the time I try to. Um, yeah, so speaking of editing, um, I apologize to the audience for the delay on the last two episodes, but it's new, it's actually Nick's fault. Um, his, yeah. <laughs> his audio from the EmberConf one was horrible, um, which I, I expected, but I didn't really expect the level of horribleness <laughs> that came through. Um, so I had to do a lot of editing to make that sound decent. And then... Not to be outdone by himself, he outdid himself. And the next episode, um, we found out that after we recorded, there were huge gaps in uh, Nick's audio. Like it didn't record, but not you know, not at the end, not at the beginning. He would just be talking, and then his audio would stop recording, and then it would start again a minute later. So um, if you got one of the MP3s, um, if you if you're um, if you're like iTunes or whatever pulled what the first time I published the last episode um, in the beginning, there was some definitely messed up audio because I had missed one spot of that where it was messed up. But basically I had to do a whole lot of recreation and fun stuff to make that episode work. Um, so we're going to try this one where uh, Nick has changed all of his recording setup to try to make Completely. me happy. Exactly. I'm doing exactly what Tori is doing, so I should be okay. Yeah, which, by the way, generally never a good idea to like do whatever I'm doing because I'm generally probably doing stuff wrong. So, um, But in this case, he was doing it way more wronger. So <laughs> that's that. In this case, if I'm wrong, I have someone to blame. That's true. It's my own damn fault then. <laughs> and then I'll just, you know, drink myself to sleep and cry at night and like, you know, like I do every night. Um, <laughs> this episode so, brought to you by drinking yourself to sleep and crying every night. Brought to you by despair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so um, before we get started, I was just checking something out. Um, so I randomly found this thing for Sketch because I just like to talk about graphics apps now. That's what this show is going to become. It's just going to become all graphics all the time. So. You know, it's just going to become me and Paul Shannon talking about graphic stuff. That should be great. Yeah. Uh, so 
sketch, as I said a couple episodes ago, or maybe last episode, I don't remember at this point, um, they updated their symbols, and I hate it. Um, but there's a lot of limitations with symbols. Um, the biggest limitation being layout-based. Um, one of the examples is if you have, say, a card design, and you want to put the label at the bottom of the card, um, if the label wraps to two lines, then if it's basically in, if it's a sketch um, symbol, it's going to clip, you know, like the second line will go down. So either if you have two line, you know, titles, sometimes you can't bottom align it because sometimes it'll be one line, sometimes it'll be two. And there's no way to say align to bottom. Um, it doesn't know that. Um, so you end up moving your line up so that it can accommodate one and two, which then doesn't look right, and you just kind of deal with that. Um, but uh, somebody created uh, some really cool plugins, and one is called Compo. And you can actually, it, it, it's actually kind of intelligent. So you can create um, a, a symbol-ish type thing, a, a folder or grouping in this case, um, and then you can add attributes to a layer and say that I want this to be bottom aligned. You can say, you know, to align it to the bottom. Uh, you can set it to how much padding you want um, by, and you do this by just naming the layer um, with the special um, naming, basically naming conventions. Uh, and then you hit the plugin, which should just be command J to run the plugin. And then it updates everything and moves the stuff around for you um, so that you can always have, um, you know, your, your, your text line bottom aligned to the card. Um, even if it wraps to two lines, because it just, you know, you run the script and it fixes it, basically. Um, and so it's actually kind of more powerful than symbols in Sketch currently, because uh, you could do a lot more with the layout. And then I found that the same person, I believe, wrote another plugin called State Machine. Um, so if you've ever done a UI, like, um, you know, of any complexity, uh, UI components have states, like, say, pagination, like you need to show, like, you're on number two, or then you're on number three. Um, and currently you kind of have to fudge around with that because you can't just have one component. You kind of have to have two because you can't say, okay, show me that component, but set it to the state number three. Uh, you kind of just have to have a duplicate or you have to have some other you know, way of finagling it. Um, so there's just a lot of workarounds, but in state machine, uh, you could basically, again, you name layers a certain way. And then you you can tell it to you know tell state machine I want um, you know uh, state three or state on for a button you know so you can create buttons you have one button that has an on state and an off state and then you can toggle it um, just by clicking the thing and clicking state machine and then letting it change um, so that's really really helpful when you're when you're doing mockups because you don't have to have multiple components one showing on one showing off um, you just have one button or like a toggle, and then you say, okay, I want this one to show on, this one to show off. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's really helpful when you're generating a lot of screens, because uh, as soon as you get to more complex things, you have to have a lot of screens, and then suddenly uh, it's easy to just, it, it's difficult to uh, show all the states that you need to show um, quickly, because you have to manually do it all. So, Tori, just how cool. far are we... How far are we until like designers can just design the web and cut out programmers from making forms and all these crazy things? Um, well, we, we passed that. Dreamweaver was the pinnacle, and then 
Well, hold on. Front page. Front Sorry, page. Yes. That that was some. Yeah, I mean, you guys aren't needed something. anymore. Um, and really, if you know, you you look at Squarespace, um, one of our sponsors. Uh, you know, definitely. You know, if you don't like to code, check out Squarespace. Um, no, I mean that's definitely. It's one of those things that is never gonna. I don't think it's ever gonna be like a thing, but. I would give my standard technology prediction and say it's five to 10 years away. Just like all, <laughs> all great technology. Um, I know Adobe worked on it for a while um, with, with some of their suites and, and things like that. Yeah. You know what it is? I think is that once you reach, um, so, so you're always kind of playing catch up because you're taking the trends that are there now and you build software to be able to automate that in a way. But then designers and developers push those limits and suddenly the tool that you came up with can't do those things. And then to make it actually do those things, you're going to have to, you know, have a huge hodgepodge of code because you didn't architect it the way that, um, you know, it's just it's not made to do that. And I think a good example of that is, um, you know, when you look at responsive design, all these tools that were out there for um you know, mocking up. I mean, it's really a reason that Sketch even exists is that Photoshop was really geared towards photo manipulation. And even though everyone did web design in it, it they really ignored that segment of the population. Like they really didn't give us the tools that we needed. And they had um, Adobe Fireworks, which actually came from Mac of Media's um, acquisition. And they just kind of abandoned that. Like they would do little updates to make it work, but they really didn't add new features and stability. Um, but it had all these features like multiple pages, components, states. It had all this stuff. And then they killed it. And they left everyone kind of going, well, wait, I used that. So I guess I have to use Photoshop. Um, but, you know, an upstart said, you know what, there's a better way to do this. Um, and they created sketch and it's really taken off because it's not Photoshop. And I think the same um, type of thing applies to this idea of prototyping things is, you know, Oh, we can make, you know, this page that, you know, there's a lot of uh, things out there where it's like, okay, well you have all of your screens created now highlight a button and say which screen it goes to. And then it generates this clicking prototype thing where you can, you know, tap on that button and it goes to that screen and it kind of looks real. But then, People were like, okay, cool. But now with mobile phones and stuff, you can, there's always swiping interactions and these kind of, you know, you, you swipe and some objects move and this parallax effects and all this. And it's like, okay, like, how do we do that? Oh yeah. Our tool, our tool doesn't do that. Oh, okay. So then if they built that into it, I'm sure there'd be some new paradigm that's come up with that people want to do. And again, oh, our tool wasn't created to do that. So yeah, but it's kind of like a factory, though. Like you, you design, and and it should like be able to push out a widget, and that widget's kind of usable. And I understand like twenty percent of the the stuff you won't be able to do this with. But I figure by now, like design tools would have the eighty percent done, um, and like tucked away. It's like here you got a form builder. This is like the standard way of doing forms, and it's totally cool. Everybody likes it for design or something. I I don't know. I, I've seen your your what you're talking about. Uh, we did this on a previous project where you designed it and pushed out like this this live demo prototype, and it was eighty percent of the way there. I mean, I I could see the it was missing that twenty percent, but um, it I'm just I'm just waiting so you guys can design and like hand stuff over to us, and then it's beautiful and we're ready to go with it, and we don't have to do that boilerplate. And maybe 
um, paradigms on the front end will will make that simpler going forward too. I'm just thinking in terms of like uh, Redux, where it's you know really simplified state that is all managed in a unidirectional way. So it's it's a you know it's consistent in the way that data is being updated, and um, you know every it's all built on on just this you know a state machine like like you're showing here, but uh, you know everything can be predictably updated in one way from one place, and it might be easier to design tools around that to make it simpler. Yeah, I would love it um, personally. You know, one of the things that uh, a lot of people use is as we talked about Framer. Um, and that, I mean, it uses real code, um, and it's copy script, so it's not really real code. It's really awful code. Um, but you know, it compiles to JavaScript, so whatever, <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah. You didn't mean that framer fans. <laughs> I did. I did mean that actually. I absolutely meant it. Um, is copy script dead? Does anyone know? No, it's, it's still going, right? Uh, I, you know, someone posted on Facebook on the framer um, Facebook and said um, they were wondering. Don't trust it. Uh, don't trust Facebook. Yeah, it's it's curated by their editors. Their editors want you to think that it's dead. Congress oh, is looking gosh. into it though. Don't oh, worry. Gosh. Oh man, no. <laughs> you know, hold on. That can't be true because um, I heard on Facebook that vaccines cause autism, and I think that's true because even though science doesn't support that. And, you know, my mommy instinct says that it feels right. And I also saw on Facebook that the mommy instinct is actually like one of the most powerful forces. And it was, it was actually written on top of this beautiful like mountain scene. Like you can't fake that. Like that's, I, we're just hitting up all the, the uh, podcast archetypes, the conspiracy hat theorists and the mommy (laughs) bloggers and, I don't know if we're going to capture those markets, Tori. I think I think we might might we have to try. Time. We have to try. <laughs> what do they say? You you miss one hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Well, we lose one hundred percent of the of the listeners we don't go after. Okay, that's such a good point. Yeah. I can't argue with that. It's terrible. I know. <laughs> I know. No, I had heard though. Um, seriously. Someone had said, and I didn't look into this. So this is probably just not true, but that um, basically, <laughs> CoffeeScript said that, like the the author had said, basically, like it achieved its goals, and they didn't have any plans to add new features, um, and it was just kind of like it's done. Um, I guess I shouldn't be saying stuff like that, not knowing if it's true. <laughs> well, just going off of their website, the last release is one point ten, which was released September third, twenty fifteen. And if you go to their GitHub and look at Master, Master hasn't had a fresh commit in 28 days. So, uh, you know, it seems like there's still work being done on it, maybe. But a release is more than six months away. Or it's been more than six months since a release. Yeah. And I don't know. There's probably been, what, six versions of Node since then? Yeah. And uh, literally. (laughs) I wonder, too, like what those... uh... Like looking at the last few releases or like, you know, pushes are not releases, but the last couple of commits, like they don't seem very uh, involved. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, a but couple... that's standard for a stable product. Like a stable product is going to have a slow commit and release schedule. Yeah. It doesn't mean I... they're sunsetting it necessarily, but it, it just means it's, you know, it's, it's so good. They don't have anything to add to it. 
Yeah, but I you would think that you know they would have stuff to add to it given how much I don't know things are changing in the world of I don't know. Have you guys been paying any attention to the JavaScript community lately? Has been things been a lot of stuff been going on, or is it pretty dormant and no one uses it anymore? I try and stay out of that. That's yeah. That's too uh, conflict riddled for me. Yeah, I don't. I don't like. JavaScript. I like arguing, so sometimes I get involved. But uh... no, I just mean it, you know it, in general though. Like you know JavaScript, like there's a lot of stuff happening like all the time. Um, so it just seems kind of odd that it, there really is. I mean, seriously, the last commits until you get to November of like 2015, there really isn't any code commits. It's all just typos. People like fixing comment typos. Yeah. Like, like I said, we've literally had six versions of Node since then. Yeah. Because we had in between that time, we had the IOJS split. And then the reconciliation uh, to Node 4 and then Node 5 and now Node 6. It's so keeping up with the Kardashians. Like, I can't even... There's <laughs> so much going on. Uh, I have to I have to just yeah. call out this one thing on CoffeeScript's website. The golden rule of CoffeeScript is it's just JavaScript. I feel like TypeScript... Like, that more correctly describes TypeScript. Because at least it's still the same syntax. Yeah. And I had um, linked on the mention uh, i'm probably just kind of like people are gonna lose it on me that i'm like saying all this stuff um <laughs> just unresearched just off the cuff but i had um i had actually posted a link to uh the site that went over like frustrations with uh using uh type with coffee script um and i just googled it because like they were saying i guess like one of the framework people was like you know we might um you know, go away from CoffeeScript because that's kind of what someone was saying is like, do you have any plans to, you know, go away from CoffeeScript and just use, you know, ES6? Um, and they said, oh, maybe, but, you know, why? You know, what's your problem with it? And this article like pretty much encapsulated everything I hate about CoffeeScript. Um, <laughs> and it show it, it gives like really good examples of uh, things that look right, but then when they compile are not right just because of the indenting and, and those types of things. Um, so. Oh, yeah. Anyway, that's the just, implicit returns. Yeah, it's, you know, it's fine if people like... Wait, wait, wait. You can't complain fine. about implicit returns. ES6 does that now with uh, arrow functions. But only in one format. And if I'm going to use that format, then I expect it. Oh, that makes it better. Like only that's returns exactly. ignore your, you know, only returns like can return with the end of ASI. And yeah. <clears throat> wait just because Only in that case it makes it better <laughs> well, well actually though like i just because one tool has flaws doesn't mean that uh you know it invalidates the problems with the other tool and you know things yes, like it does tori <laughs> well things you know things like when you're when you make a function um or or you uh de define um like you declare um an array or something um, you know, when you go to the next line, because there aren't, you're not using, you know, uh, brackets and stuff, you go to the next line. And if you indent improperly, um, you can radically change what it is that you get, um, because it interprets spaces and indentation, to, you know, it's basically replacing, replacing the brackets. Right. Um, and my biggest problem with that is this is a tool geared towards designers to create prototypes. And I know code fairly well. Like I can write JavaScript code. I can, you know, I'm not great at it, but I get it. Like I know how to make this stuff happen. And yet 
I spend more time fighting with CoffeeScript than I do getting my prototypes done, which is why I don't use Framer as much because it's like, it's just so difficult to follow sometimes. And then you're like, oh, well, it was a stupid mistake, but that stupid mistake is only there because, hey, with brackets, I would totally see, oh, look, that doesn't belong here, you know, but with without it, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to spot and it doesn't give you a lot of, um, until recently, it really didn't give you a lot of uh, feedback on what the errors exactly were in Framer. Um, it, you know, you didn't have like your standard console and stuff um, to really easily understand what the hell's going on. Uh, so you would end up just sitting there staring at it going, this should be working and it's not. Um, so anyway, now that I've diatribed on that, let's talk a little bit more about um, prototyping. Um, so uh, Paul and I worked with a, uh, well, Paul's still working on the project actually, but um, a couple weeks ago I worked on this uh, app and uh, this customer does um, mission critical software. Um, and when I say mission critical, I mean when you have a fire or a medical emergency in your house and you need to call someone for help, that kind of needs to work. Um, that's like mission critical. And that's what they do. Um, it's 911 software. And it's crazy because there is a lot of legacy in this industry uh, just because, you know, when you think about it, uh, if you think back to like those shows like Rescue 911 back in the 80s, you know, they were using computers and they were using command line, you know, tools and, you know, these big green and black displays and stuff. Um, and those all save data somewhere and they all, you know, they had databases and all these things. And now, you know, modernizing that and using, you know, the web, um, there's, you know, there's still legacy stuff in the back end where, you know, just obscure stuff, which is, uh, Paul will talk a little bit about that, um, not getting too much into specifics. Um, but I want to talk about the, the UI challenge of something like this, um, creating, uh, a UI for mission critical apps. Um, it's definitely a more stressful thing for me to, <laughs> to take on because, you know, if you're creating a chat app and, like, uh, you know, you, you create a bad UI for sending a message to somebody or whatever, you know, not the end of the world. Um, you know, you can fix it and it's not that big of a deal, right? Um, someone doesn't get their emoji fast enough, whatever. Um, in this case though, if the operator doesn't get the information fast enough to the ambulance, you may die. Um, oh, forgot to tell you that they're allergic to, uh, this drug and they're going to die now because I, I didn't see where to put that in or I didn't get there fast enough. I didn't type it in right. Um, those kinds of things are, you know, these are real things that um, when you go and you read, you know, Reddit and stuff, you, you read like the JS, the JavaScript, you know, Reddits and stuff. It's like, there's a lot of people like, oh, you just use like this tool and this tool, like do this and these are best practices. And, you know, that's great. But when you're living in the <laughs> real world doing these things that are super, super important for people's lives, um, Sometimes a little bit more goes into that than just picking some off-the-shelf thing and playing with the coolest, hottest new thing. Um, but anyway, Tori, you just you just microarchitecture it. And, <laughs> and this problem solved. <laughs> Twenty thousand components will surely stand up over the next fifteen years. Um, what unless one wrong? of them is left pad. Unless one of them is left pad. Um, <laughs> so true. Um, so. One of the things that, as I mentioned, they used to use and 
um, all of these uh, command line tools and these big, you know, ugly monitors with tiny little displays and uh, green and black text and whatever. Uh, and so when they moved to the web, the um, you know that kind of interface just kind of moved with it because that's what they're used to, um, and they're generally okay with it. You know, they they look at it, they understand how it works, they tab through their stuff, they never really touch their mouse, they just you know use a keyboard for almost everything, um, and that presents some design challenges because uh, we have to you know basically everything you input has to be form fields. I mean, there's all these form fields. Um, and depending on what the call is or what the problem is, the form fields are different for every one of them, but they need to operate somewhat similarly. But the thing also is that um, every every little operator station or whatever that would be called um, can have their own kind of customization to the forms, different you know things. So there can always be different languages. Um, you know, obviously, if you're in Mexico, you're going to have a different. You know, you're going to be using Spanish instead of English, um, and so there's a lot of these constraints that you have to think about. Uh, so when I got my, f- when I, when I first started, I looked at this and I said, oh, this form is awful. Everything, there's, there's literally no space. Like if you just put a bunch of HTML form fields onto a page without breaking the line at all, um, or maybe occasionally breaking it, but having, you know, the, uh, the labels to the left, these big long labels, nothing lined up. It looked awful. Um, so the first thing I did was, you know, get, get all designy. I'd be like, I'm going to make this look amazing. And I threw in a grid and I'm like, oh yeah, grid system. Here we go. And I. And I put in the labels on the top, and I was like, look at how much nicer that looks. Everything's aligned. It made me so happy. My OCD was so happy um, with with this nice grid where everything lined up. Um, and then they said, that's cool. Like, that was a really small form, though. And there's this other form that's, that's, that's much longer. And then there's these other components that can be in it sometimes. And they really can't be they they can't scroll the page because you kind of need to be able to glance at it and see pertinent information and quickly enter information as well and i looked at that oh, and did said, we, hmm. oh go ahead did we mention that these are procedurally generated forms we did not mention that i was gonna you're I was, just you're not just you're not yeah. just ge- you're not just designing a few forms you're designing a form standard that it can hold up against uh resizing and procedural generation which is super different than just you know yeah and that's what was kind of thrown at me then yeah that was what was thrown at me then it's like oh yeah so that form is much smaller and it can be you know this form i said well can i get you know like he just show me the forms and it's like oh no no it's not just some forms I can show you. I can show you examples, but it could be any number of fields because each customer can change things and, and forms need to be able to, you know, we need to be able to create new ones. And I was like, oh, well, that definitely throws everything I just did out the window. And, you know, that was one day of, you know, not a whole day of work, but a half a day of work of, you know, breaking out that grid to realize then that I didn't get all the information because as I was just too gung-ho to make this awful form look amazing and I didn't ask the right questions. Um, so I went back, you know, asked more questions and got much better understanding um, uh, from from there. So, yeah. So as Paul mentioned, procedural form. So I don't know what form fields are going to come in. I can't know that. I just have to create some sort of set of rules. Um, and... So you start to see these constraints of, well, you had a you had a form that was jam-packed onto a screen before with no spacing, no padding, um, and it took up a lot of the screen already, and now you want it to look better, which means you need spacing and padding, but you also can't use more space 
clearly. Um, and then to what Paul said about the uh, displays resizing, while they aren't obviously using their mobile phones to do this, um, there is, you know, the, this whole system, you can pull off uh, windows and like you can, you know, put a form to the bottom left or you can make it bigger or smaller. Um, and they kind of each operator customizes it to within, you know, how they like it. So they can see other information like here's a map with all the plot points of where the police cars are and the bad guys and whatnot. I don't know. And so, you know, there it could be variously sized. Um any number of form fields can be there. And yeah, you start to realize this is a really daunting task because you don't have a lot of control. You have a lot of constraints. And I seriously sat there for a couple of days trying out lots and lots of different ideas on how to make this work. Um, I was going to lose my mind at the end of it because I just like, I, I was just sitting there going like, Paul, I don't like, what how what i don't understand what i'm supposed to like how am i supposed to make this work <laughs> oh that was my best project i i got every time you gave a design uh i was like does it follow these rules can we do this can we do this and i get to to like you know enforce the rules on tori here yeah 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 you know you can't do that can't do that <laughs> can't do that can't do that um so this is the importance also of good communication on your team, um, having oh, yeah. having multiple team members that can look at stuff, and that's the value of a prototype too. Um, so off I went to Framer, and then after about an hour, I realized I didn't want to use Framer for this because oh my god, shoot me, um, dealing with CoffeeScript. So I went to Axure and I opened that up, and I started working on, you know, laying out a nice grid that was smaller, um, less less line spacing. Uh, but then I still had this issue of field labels. Um, that was really driving me insane because some of these things are currently, they would just be um, like, they're really like two letters, but they actually represented like this long word. Um, you know, uh, I can't even think of one right now. Uh, can you think of one, Paul? Location. No. Oh, location, location, which was just like L-O-C. Lock. Yeah, yeah, lock. But it means location. And then there would be one that was B-T, doesn't stand for Bluetooth. It actually stands for beat. Like, what's the beat? Um, the cops beats. I don't know. Um, what? I don't even know what a beat is. Like, I know what it is. Like, I heard it, you know, like, oh, he's working the beat. But, like, I don't even know how it's defined. Anyway, neither here nor there. People can email in and let us know. Um, but anyway. Email. That's recent, Tori. Yeah. No. You, can also, you can also mail us a letter. You could. You can send smoke signals. <laughs> fax. You could fax a facsimile if you guys have a fax wow. machine. You could. You can connect to our BBS. And... <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> well, I say email because that way I definitely won't read it. Um, so, yeah, anyway, back to um, field labels. So, and then they threw the curveball at me that we also need to do this in Spanish. Now, I don't speak Spanish, so that was interesting. I'm sure that when they actually show it to somebody who speaks Spanish, it's going to be a little funny because I had to translate it myself using Google. And I did my best to try to understand the context that I was switching to and, you know, using the word that, you know, there's like seven words that all mean, you know, the same thing in our language. Um, so try to find the right slang or the right, like, you know, word in Spanish that means what it means here was tricky. Um, but anyway, I did that. We'll see what happens. 
Um, so anyway, what do you do, right? Do you, you can't put a label on a top because it takes up too much vertical spacing. Putting it on the left destroys my will to live um, because it makes everything jagged looking and awful um, and it doesn't line up properly. And if you did line it all up properly, well, you'd have some really long words, some really small words, and you'd be wasting a lot of space again. Um, and like we said, you don't know how many form fields you're going to have. So how, what do you do? So I said, well, how do they deal with it right now? Like how, they see lock and they're like, oh yeah, well, they know that it's, they know that it's location. So there's definitely um, a lot of, um, you know, built-in, you know, training and memory that happens here that once they understand where it is and what it is, they go, oh, okay. Um, you know, they don't really look at the labels much anymore, um, but it is still important to have the labels, right? So that means that my first idea was, oh, well, what if I did it where the label is actually in the input? Um, and then when you click, it just, you know, disappears. Like when it says email, like login email, that kind of thing. And you click it and it goes away. Um, I was like, but that's not going to work, right? Because it loses its context. Now, all of a sudden you, you have the number four, which is the beat number. But what does that mean if you don't have the label there? Um, even though they might know what it is beforehand, now it loses all context. Um, so I came up with the idea of what if we showed the full label, just like just like that, just like you would for like an email input where it has says email and then you click it and it disappears. But what if instead of it disappearing, it then showed the truncated version in the input, but to the left. Um, so the truncated version would say LOC, well, it'd say location first. And then when you focus the element, it would then shrink down the, the size of the, uh, the hint would become smaller and move to the left all the way um, and say LOC. And then you type in location, and then now your input says LOC to the left in smaller type, so that you can still tell what it is. Um, it doesn't take up any more space, and now you can, um, you know, quickly glance at something and go, "Oh, that's the location. That's the beat." Um, and if you know, if you remove the data, it goes back to the way it was and has a nice long label again. Um, this really helped because now I could say, now we could go into the data and say, "Okay." Inputs of, say, things that are like a beat, it's a number, it's only expected to have like a couple of numbers in it, uh, that lines up, you know, that can be between one and two grid columns wide. Um, and then you could have medium size inputs, which are, you know, between maybe four and five input inputs wide. Uh, and then you could have larger, larger ones that say, okay, however wide it can be, go ahead and make it that wide, which is uh, one of the great things that we used was Flexbox to do the layout for this. Yeah. Um, we did a flexbox based grid, uh, which allowed us to do exactly that. So you could hint and say, you could give a hint to the processor, which would, we'll, we'll get into the data here in a second, but you know, basically when you pull the data in, it has to get transformed. And during that transformation, it can say, okay, you know, this is a big one. This is a small one kind of thing. And then we just let it kind of flow, but we use those hints to kind of give it some max width. You know, I don't. You can't be bigger than, you know, two columns wide, even if you're, you know, um, even if you could, that kind of thing for a small one. Um, so anyway, that was a lot of fun. Um, and the real world is difficult. And I much prefer chat apps that don't kill people if I do it wrong. I, I sleep better at night. Well, I sleep better after I've done crying and drinking. So with an app like this, uh, where it was a like a terminal app, before or you know 
I'm, I'm just thinking back to an app I used when I was working as a cable, like a, a an operator at a cable company. Uh, and it was it was uh, terminal based, and then we switch. They switched to this horrible UI on top of the terminal, but they broke all of the keyboard shortcuts, which allowed everyone to be really fast because everyone was used to to doing that. And then all of a sudden, it was no longer fast. Is that something that is important when doing some kind of a, a an update like this? It's only important if you don't want case? people to die. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely important, and something they impressed upon us uh, when we we're showing them the designs was. You know, I was using my mouse to kind of jump between fields because I uh-huh. just, that's just my nature. And they're like, no, no, like it has to, the tab index has to be right. And this is just a prototype that I created, right? But I, using Axure, I was actually able to get the tab indexing right and do it all and make it focus around nice. things when you tab over a button. You know, if you have a little button um, that has to do something, um, you know, you want it to highlight. So I was able to prototype all that so that they could go and show people and, you know, definitely being able to tab right into it um, and never take your hands off the keyboard was was a huge thing nice and now your grandma's alive people (laughs) you're welcome thanks tori yeah no problem so paul uh what was what what kind of fun stuff did you do with the the data side of here like how does it how does it pull from the legacy and become not legacy (laughs) so um they they have a, a decent approach to a lot of that. Their their core systems are really deep down and um, only kind of rear their ugly head uh, very, very rarely, thank goodness. And, um, you know, the, in general, whenever you're working with a legacy system, the, the plan is to just isolate it, isolate it away as far away as you possibly can. And I um, just legacy systems, systems like, or mother-in-laws. Let, um, it's the same. I, is there a difference? Know. Yeah, it's pretty much the is same. There... It is a legacy <laughs> system. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, like, so they they do some amount of isolation, and and that's actually turned out pretty good. And um, what it did is, it, when you isolate a system, um, what you want to do then is find a way to communicate with that system. Um, in this case, they have a very old communication method that we're they updating. They use email. They, That's no, the they, old the communication method, the email. Actually mails Facsimile. letters. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> so, um, no, the, well, so the old system uses a, a proprietary type format um, that uses delimiters to make calls and all of the commands are essentially done like a um i don't know like an rpc style so basically you have a an identifier that identifies a command and then data that follows and um so like one of the challenges is we we wanted to shelter our clients from that system as much as possible because um number one we want to be able to update that in in a sane way and number two, we want to be able to work with data now instead of just working with commands. We want to be able to work with real JSON-type data. And so, um, yeah, they, we, we started to work with them to, to describe like what, your, what the objects look like in JSON and um, kind of outline um, how their, their systems should look to the client. Um, because previously they were basically having the server do everything, including render out tables and render out any kind of like um, 
view components, you know, just like you would in the old days of the web, nine, circa 1999 or something like that. And um, when, when you have a legacy system, that's not too unusual to have a system that wants to do everything um, and push, make the client just glue it together. So um, we're now trying to break away the legacy system and create a communication layer off of that uh, to, to encapsulate this, the system from the client and then actually have the client handle most of the um, most of the, the the labor, and actually update views and update things like that. Um, so, it, by the end of the project, we should have a clear separation. We should have the legacy system kind of cordoned off and allow us to develop kind of going forward with new, um, like a, a more uh, responsive type uh, client, one that doesn't have to ask the server for permission for everything or doesn't, you know do a round trip every time something changes. Yeah, the generating HTML on the on the server and spinning it back to the, the client is definitely um, limiting <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely, um, I enjoyed working on it and the customer is awesome and really, really helpful with their feedback on doing the, the prototypes, you know, like, you know, this is a mission critical thing. And, you know, the, the design phase is only, you know, this isn't for the whole app. It's just for these forms, um, you know, took a couple of weeks to like get it right. So it's rapid iteration, you know, really going at it. And prototyping was just key because I can really show what it does and they could get it in the hands of operators who actually do this and get their feedback before, you know, in the old days, I would have just given them some static mockups and hope that, it worked as well as I hoped it would because the interaction would have been too hard to, <laughs> to really capture properly um, in the amount of time and to do iterations. Cause I, you know, I did a couple different ideas and you know, that it would have been too difficult, you know, 10 years ago to prototype those up quickly um, and really show the idea properly. Um, so now it's really cool to be able just to do that. Um, and yeah, soon five years, five, 10 years, you guys won't even be needed. You just be, out, out in the cold, I'll be podcasting all alone. Maybe you guys are professional we'll, podcasters. We'll um, move on to more important things than building forms. You yeah. designers can do that. Okay, thanks. Yeah, that's, like re-implementing everything. That's a horrible thing to wish on somebody. Forms are the worst thing ever. I hate forms. Um, yet they're like the basis for everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's the web. That's the it's whole the web. web. Like eighty percent of it is forms. It is. I think that eighty percent of the web is just sign up and password recovery forms. Uh, Nick, you went silent. No, he muted. Anyway, okay, guys, time for the next uh, edition of Truthy Falsy. Did you guys like playing Truthy Falsy last week or two? Five no, weeks I got ago, it wrong. Whenever it was, yeah, you all got it wrong. I am the undisputed champion so far. Um, okay. Well, so what I do is each episode, we will do truthy falsy. I'm going to challenge my panel of amazing JavaScript experts to sniff out the falsy in my questions. So I will give them three questions. One of them is false, and they have to tell me which one it is. So since... Paul likes going first. I'm going to let you go first. I'm going to read the questions and then <laughs> let's go. Okay. Number one. And by the way, no cheating, no Googling. 
that, that ruins the game. Yeah. Thank you. Um, okay. Number one. In 1994, IBM released a touchscreen smartphone that could make phone calls, receive faxes, emails, and pages. It ran DOS and had apps like an address book, maps, stocks, news, and could take handwritten notes. It also had um, the ability to download third-party apps. Number two. In 1965, the Zenith Corporation released a TV with a wireless remote control that used audio frequencies instead of IR. This was so that people could also turn on and off the TV by their voice saying on, off. Um, This feature was removed the following year due to complaints of normal household noises such as blenders or doors shutting, turning off the TV. Sounds like Captain Crunch's whistle back in the day. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, Number three. um, I'm going to paste these into our little document here since I didn't do that so you guys can reference them. Um, Elijah Gray in 1888 created a device that captured and transmitted handwritten messages over telegraph lines which would be written out on the other side by a connected pen go ahead paul which one is falsy well in 1994 isn't that palm that released some touchscreen thingamajobber back then uh i i don't know it sounds legit, so, hmm. Is only one of them falsy? Only one's falsy. Yeah. Okay. So go on to number two, then, if you're not sure about that one. What do you think? Uh, this is the TV remote, wireless remote, that could turn on and off with voice. Okay, so the, the TV remote that can turn on and off by voice that that sounds by shouting on and off i don't i don't think on and off have enough differentiation between them that you could catch that in 1956 now if it was like you know scream a high pitch and scream a low pitch sure so or if it was like the clapper yeah like i could see that um i you know i'm I'm going to I'm going to suspect that one. Okay. That's my falsey. That's going to be your falsey. Okay. Uh Nick, why don't you go through them and tell us what you think? So, number 1, I immediately think of Newton, which is not IBM, but I don't know enough about IBM to know if they made that or not. Number 2, I totally agree with Paul. I don't know if they could have distinguished between on and off since Siri can't really do that now. <laughs> uh, Siri's trying way Siri's too hard. Siri's using the same technology. Yeah. Siri's <laughs> yeah. using the same technology. I didn't say the Amazon Echo, though. The Amazon Echo is amazing and can do that. This episode brought to you by the Amazon Echo. <laughs> in, Where's our check, Echo? In, <laughs> in 1888. That seems unrealistic, but I feel like that's a trap. So I think number three is probably true. Uh, I'm going to go with one just to distinguish because I picked the same one as everyone last time. And yes, <laughs> so I'm gonna my leadership tanked the whole thing last time. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm thinking okay. in 1888, you know, you got a plotter or something. Maybe, you know, maybe it's not like a pen is worth thinking, um, but it's some like plotter or something in that case. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
let's see. We will take these from the um, bottom up since you both agree on number three being true. So the, um, in 1888, um, Elijah Gray created a device that captured and transmitted handwritten messages over telegraph lines, which would be written out on the other side by a connected pen. Um, so as I said, you both agree on this one, and this one is truthy. This one's truthy. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is actually really kind of pretty crazy and cool. Um, so yeah, this guy created this device that you had a pen and a piece of paper and um, you know you could you would write uh, with it and it would transmit you know basically like where the pen went by the tension I believe it's not by the tension of the um, of the mechanism that holds the pen and it transmits that to down a telegraph line and on the other end um, you know basically instead of getting a beep, beep 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 you'd basically tran you know you would convert back into like a mechanical uh, movement of of the pen um, on the other side, and it would actually write it out. Um, so this was kind of like a fax machine back then, uh, and it had uh, a bit of a benefit because you could write anything. You didn't have to have a telegraph operator, um, you know, doing the Morse code translation for you. Um, so it kind of cut somebody out of the loop. Um, and yeah, you could you could write in code. You could write in different language. Um, you write anything. Um, you draw a picture. Kind of cool. Okay. So that brings us to uh, number two. Uh, in 1956, the Zenith Corporation released a TV with a wireless remote control that used audio frequencies instead of IR. This was so that people could also turn on and off the TV by shouting on and off. This feature was removed the following year due to complaints of normal household noises such as blenders and doors shutting, um, turning off the TV. Uh, Paul, you think this one's the falsy? Nick, you think this one is truthy? This one is the falsy. Hey. Yeah, you're absolutely Sorry, right. Nick. You're absolutely right. I made up the part about voice control on and off. And I thought when I wrote it, I thought exactly what you said, which was that if they think about it, they're going to go, how would they possibly differentiate on and off? Um, but this isn't entirely made up. Um, it is that part is made up. Um, but there, there were actually remotes that the some of the first wireless remotes actually did work uh, off of audio frequencies instead of uh, IR. Um, and so you would you would press the button and the audio frequency would be interpreted. And some of them even had like little servos that would get uh, triggered that would then mechanically move the dial. Because if you remember the old TVs, they had dials. Like you didn't have this digital thing where you press it. So the dial actually physically had to turn. Um, and that's it would actually oh, yeah. physically turn the buttons. Um, but... There was actually uh, reports of things like someone sneezing, turning off their television, um, or you know various uh, different noises like a dog whistle or something actually yeah. uh, being picked up and doing weird things with the TV. Um, or somebody saying Xbox power off over Skype or something. Yeah, or that. <laughs> it's exactly the same thing. We have progressed so far. Uh, that, of course, means that um, in 1994, IBM released a touchscreen smartphone that could make phone calls, receive faxes, emails, and pagers. It ran DOS and had apps. Um, is true. It was called the IBM Simon. Um, and, yeah, it was, um, it was initially offered uh, in 15 states uh, for $899 with a two-year contract or uh, $1,099 without a contract. So 
kind of not that much different than when the iPhone came out. Uh, they did reduce the price to $599 with a two-year contract later, um, but it sold only about 50,000 units, and I think it was only sold for about six months before it was pulled. Um, definitely a, a pretty beastie device um, trying to do a lot, but that's pretty crazy that when you think about 1994 and, you know, how long it was until we really got that, you know, I mean, we're talking 13 years until we got an iPhone um, and definitely the technology progressed quite a lot, but it's still really cool to think that, you know, there really were people that saw the technology and saw that potential and tried to make it happen. Um, even if they were way before their time. Um, really cool. Yeah. Should have put OS2 warp on it instead of DOS. They probably <laughs> should have. I agree. You know, yeah. what's funny is that I almost used an OS2 warp is one of these questions, but then I saw the one about the telegraph pen and I'm like, that's too freaking cool not to use. Um, so that is pretty cool. Props yeah. to Elisha Gray. Elisha, if you're listening. Yeah. If you're listening, I think he's a listener. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. Well, thanks for playing. Um, Nick, you lost. So, you know, good job. I guess just, just Paul, not you, Nick. Horrible job, Nick. I know. Good job, Paul. I know. You know what? I, I think. So do Nick, I get? Do I get a trophy for this? Or? You um, you get ten thousand points. Um, Nick, I could definitely tell that you wanted to go with number two, but then you you really felt like last week I swept you guys because you all chose the same answer. So yep. yes, you don't get partial credit. We, I think we I'm just talked about me, Nick, and Neil. <laughs> I'm just about pointing just, it out. Regardless, just picking them all different. Just pick them different. Just so. Well, the other thing that I was really, I was, you know, I wasn't super sure. The on-off thing was really, uh, you know, it, it should have been more of a, a red flag. But the, uh, my grandma actually had a remote that had, uh, like, it, it looked like the ultrasonic, like, rangefinder things that you, you can get with Arduino kits. It had one of those on there instead of the little IR port. Yeah, that, I thought I might uh, get so, somebody on that, like, because, yeah. you know, if you kind of remember, like, maybe your grandparents, like, my grandparents had one that was actually corded. And then that was, like, in the basement, the corded remote. Um, and then the, one of their other TVs had the the sound. And I remember that going, like, wow, that's so crazy. Because I could hear it. Like, as a kid, you can hear, like, all those high-pitched noises. And I can't hear them now. But I could hear, like, dog whistles and stuff. And I could hear the Every time they press, I could hear it. Um, so yep. it's just kind of, yeah, I just thought I might get one of you. And I did. It worked out. Um, well, why don't we get going on to the next topic there, Nick? Uh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about Git. <laughs> Do you guys get it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was unintentional, <laughs> but funny. The second one was unintentional. The get it. Do you guys get it? I'm going to explain all my jokes from now on. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk about Git. Um, I think it's a, an important topic because we... We, uh, everyone uses it. Hello. Uh, everyone uses it. And <laughs> I feel like a lot of people don't know how to use it. I don't know how uh, to use it. I don't think anyone really knows how to use it, to be honest. <laughs> so the reason, the reason that this, uh, topic came to mind when we were kind of brainstorming these is because, um, we're doing some pretty complex stuff on the client work that I'm doing right now where we're, we're kind of using Git flow, um, we, where it's kind of like a pattern for, for branches. I'll put a link in the show notes. But you basically have the master branch, which has everything in a pure state. Everything has been tested and is, you know, that's your release branch. It has all of the, the releases on there. But you work day-to-day -day on a develop branch. And then off of there, you branch off and create 
uh, feature branches. And we're kind of following that a little bit, but not really, because off of develop, we have some uh, long-running feature branches, and now we're branching off of those feature branches because, uh, you know, just to not slow things down while, while things go through the review process. And so then we're, we're doing that, and we've got other feature branches, and work on those other feature branches, we'll make it back into develop, but then we'll realize, oh, we need that, or we need to make sure that our fixes work in these other feature branches, and how do we, how do we take it from develop and bring it back into all of our feature branches and and the branches off of those feature branches and you could just merge it in um but that creates a really ugly um a really ugly ugly history because you'll see these merge commits everywhere and uh, it makes merge commits less significant if you see them in there i think um but there's there's other reasons that you might not want to do that and so we've been going more of the rebase route and if you're not familiar, rebase lets you basically take the branch and it will, you tell it to rebase off of whatever branch. So I tell it, I want to rebase this feature branch off of develop. It will rewind the branch until it finds a commit that exists in both develop and in the feature branch that we're in. And then it will say, okay, that's where this branch started. And so I'll take one commit before that and I will uh, replay those commits on top of develop and trying to fast forward through that uh, and then any kind of um, conflicts that come up I just have to manually resolve and then continue and so when you do that you have all the same commits and you're basically just picking up a set of commits and moving them on top of a different base branch uh, which is all good but that's going to generate new commit hashes for all of those those uh, commits so they'll have the same commit message but the actual commit ID will be different for every one of them. So you're changing history, which means if it's already been published, you have to force push. And we do occasionally force push. Um, I know some people will probably send us uh, death threats on that. Are you not supposed but to do that? That's a... <laughs> oh. Well, there's uh, no alternative, right? Unless you want to, not if unless you want to push yeah. the merge to a new branch, which is possible. You you can't get around force pushing if you want to force push back up to your feature branch. Right, right. Yeah, so you have to do that get push dash dash force because you're changing history out from someone else, uh, out from, from the server, and then any other branches that are trying to sync up with that uh, locally when you do a fetch, uh, history will have completely changed, so you'll have to figure that out, or you'll have to reset and go back to uh, a fresh state, or cherry pick the commits, or, or do this other things. This is like a horrible version of 11.22.63, um, where you're trying to change history. Okay, you guys, yeah, you guys, you guys didn't see that show what, on Hulu. Is, yet, are those the lost numbers? Eleven twenty two sixty three. No, it's the Stephen five, King 15, show with James Whoa, Franco. Nick. Come on, Nick. <laughs> what was that? I know. I don't even think I got him right. It doesn't matter. Uh, no one's going to fact check you. <laughs> yeah. If you yeah. do, just so email Nick, us. If you got it, if you got the numbers wrong, just email us Nick. if you got or, it yeah. wrong. Or or slide into our BBS. <laughs> Come into the BBS and let us know. <laughs> No, in eleven twenty two sixty three, it's uh, James Franco trying to go back and not kill Kennedy or something like that. I think is the gist. But stop him from being that. killed. I mean, he's yeah. not trying to go back and not kill him himself because he already oh. didn't kill him. Well, that's good because Ted Cruz's dad. He's just <laughs> stop Ted Cruz's dad. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> 
Is he high during this? Is this why James Franco is in this? Wait, what do you mean? Of course he was high during this. He has to go back and prevent Ted Cruz's dad, played by Seth Rogen. So it's like Hot Tub Time Machine 3 or something. Yeah. Okay, I've derailed us enough. Let's continue. Thanks, Tori. Sorry. Let's rewrite history. So, so uh, yeah, we're rewriting history, and I'll be honest, I'm not afraid to force push, and it really hasn't caused a problem. I'm working with uh, a team of four developers right now, and we don't really run into issues with it. We're safe, we're, we're careful about how we, re- how we rewrite history, and I also know that I have the safety net of the ref log uh, in case things go really bad, So but right now it hasn't really caused any problems. So, wait a minute, if you have a feature branch... And then you have yep. a feature branch based on that feature branch. So you have mm-hmm. a feature branch uh, twice removed now from master. And yep. you rebase master into your original feature branch. Yeah. And then, ah, I know and then force push it. What the hell happens to the, the feature branch based on your feature branch when all of the commits rewrite their IDs? Exactly. I'm That's so exactly lost. Where I was going. sounds awesome. <laughs> this is like that moment in Lost you can just... where they see the yeah. big three-toed foot statue and you're like what and then they never bring it up again you're just like you're like i don't understand what the hell is going on anymore (laughs) go ahead unlike lost we will we will come you're gonna pay off on this okay yes much like (laughs) lost i'm gonna make the resolution take a long time to get to (laughs) that's exactly (laughs) what what the uh the problem i was trying to bring up is is uh you know normally we don't have these long-running feature branches or we don't have to branch off of them uh, if we do. So this hasn't been a problem uh, up until recently, but you're right. If So if we do exactly what, what you said, where we, we rebase, develop into the feature branch, and then force push that, now all of the same commits exist, but with new commit IDs. And so if we tried to rebase the branch that was originally off of the original branch uh, and, and put it onto the new version of the of its parent branch, um, when it tries to do that rewind, it's not reading commit messages. It's looking for commit IDs that are similar. So it will skip over all of those commit IDs, and you can think of it as just going back to where uh, develop or, or where the feature branch originally branched off of develop, and it's going to start from there. So you will have to rework conflicts from all the way back in history, in, in that history, and then you'll have duplicate commits going forward, and it's it's a total nightmare. Yeah, I thought and, my BS meter like showed up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's so yeah. there is actually an easy way to do this it's actually really simple but i didn't know about it until i actually did a little bit of research and um so when you run git rebase you can actually use the dash dash onto flag and that just lets you specify where it should rewind from so you can look at the you can look at the two branches side by side and see oh they have the same commits all the way down to here, the same commit messages minus and just different commit IDs, all the way down to here. Or you know where, where it originally was, where you're, you're, where you were originally branched off of the original feature branch, and you can say git rebase onto, tell it the new branch that you want. So this would be the origin feature branch, and then give it a starting commit. So say starting from here, which is where the original feature branch was. And then the final argument would be the uh, current branch that you're on, which would be the the child of the feature branch. So the third 
twice removed branch, I guess. So you figured all this um, out after you had already been doing it a different way. No, no, no. Oh, actually, well, you yes, read the docs yes. first, or did you just <laughs> yeah. jump in and start doing no, it and then find out later? I just jumped in. Okay. Yeah, and then yeah, I found no, the, out later. I want everyone else the best out there time to, to figure feel something about out that. is when you're like, already in, like. Yeah, yeah I want everyone out there to like understand <laughs> that it's not just you guys. It's not just you. Like if you ever feel like, oh, I must not be very good at this. I don't even like I could have should have read this. I didn't even know this. Yeah, like neither do we half the time. Like we just jump in and start doing it and then find out, oh, there's like a way better way to do this. Oh, okay. Like that's the best yeah. way to find out is when you're like, there's gotta be a better way to do this. Oh, there is. Okay. I I found this out after I spent an entire day trying to do this rebase. And I tried a bunch of different strategies for it. Um, if you go look, there's there's a gist on GitHub that has some strategies for long-running branches and keeping them up to date. And one of them is... Uh, so the big problem is, is with rebases, you have to stop at every commit that conflicts and fix those, uh, fix those conflicts and then continue on. Uh, and that can take a really long time because you're doing things kind of piecemeal. Uh, an easier way is with merge. If you just merge everything, then you have all of the the conflicts at once and you resolve them. And then apparently you can, um, if you have get re 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 turned on, which stands for reuse. Uh, oh man, I already forgot it. Reuse, reduce, recycle. Oh. <laughs> no, oh. um, man, I forgot what it stands for, but it doesn't matter. Um, what, what that does is it will remember how you resolved a conflict. And so if it runs into that conflict again in the exact same way, it will resolve it in the way that you resolved it the first time. So Can we get the Middle right East the to start time. using Git so we can resolve all these conflicts? Reuse resolution. That's what it stands for. Um, so if you, if you merge and do everything all at once, and then, um, and then you rebase and you had Git re-re-re set up, then when you rebase, it'll just look at all of the merge conflicts that you already resolved and reuse those. And then everything is back and you have rebased out the merge commit that you added, but that didn't really work for me or I wasn't doing it right. Uh, Git is not really a science as much as it is an art sometimes. And so, no, I'm, I'm kidding, but sometimes it feels like that. Like, I think it's more like magic sometimes than it is anything else. Yeah. <laughs> I literally, I seriously um, think that there's like one person on earth who understands it and he wrote it. And it's amazing. Yeah, it's like yeah. Linus or something, right? Yeah, like yeah. the guy from the yeah. uh, Peanuts, right? Or yeah, Linus Snoopy Tortillas. And, um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not into tech history, as you guys know, so I don't know who that is. He, uh, uh, I'm sure he's never done anything else that's mm -hmm. really... It's one hit wonder. I mean, I one person... Linux or anything. Well, no, because one person couldn't possibly have done this in their lifetime. Like... It's way too much. I mean, who conceptualizes all this stuff? It, it's impossible. You can't. Like, they can't have done anything else because, man, this is crazy. Now, I'm actually always in awe about um, what he's done. Um, you know, and looking at. I mean, I didn't even know in the beginning that he had created Git, and it's so crazy that it's like here a guy goes, "Oh yeah, like all these um, current." Um, you know, version control systems are awful. So I'm going to write my own, which shocker developers do that all the time. Cause that's what you guys do. I don't like this one. I'm going to just make my own version of it, but then he did. And it was actually better. And it, it's got all these crazy features that most people don't even understand. It's just like, wow. It, how, how does he get stuff? How, what does he, how does he do this all day? Like, how does he get, yeah. stuff how does he done? get stuff yeah. done? Ha <laughs> ha. 
So we're going to be up See, for that's... podcast awards, I think, now, right? Like, we're going to win some. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Best comedy See, show. See, that's the difference between, like, us and them. Like, when, when we want to rewrite something, we're wrong for doing it. But when he goes and wants to rewrite something, it turns out right. So Yeah, because he actually knows what he's doing. He should work I on think, that, Paul. I think so. <laughs> I, I, I keep asking Stack Overflow, but nobody... <laughs> Nobody has the answers. <laughs> so I have a question then based on all of this. So it seems like I'm going through a lot of work to avoid a merge commit uh, because merge commits look ugly in the, when you, when you go look back at your logs and, and you know, you're branching and seeing all of that. Um, it seems like I'm doing a lot of work for purely aesthetic reasons. Would you guys agree with that? Or uh, would you care? Would you care about your history being rewritten and changed and prettyified? Can I tell you from my? I so I am like, firstly, I don't um, care about the history. Um, and I've had this argument what? with people in our company because I'll be working on something, and you know, it's like a website update or something, and I just do a whole bunch of stuff, and then I like check it in, kind of like how I did with Subversion. You know, I don't really like atomic updates i just like shove it all in at the end right and i don't really give descriptive messages because i'm just like i did like some stuff i don't know like i don't remember what i did at this point like i worked on it for like eight hours i don't know what all (laughs) i did how do i describe this right so i just check it in and say like worked on some stuff and all the files are there eight hours of work all done yeah like all the files are like you can (laughs) look at what it is so i don't you know why do you need me to tell you and I get messages. I've seen like, that, Tori. Yeah, no, yeah, thanks. it's absolutely true. <laughs> and then they're like, well, when you look back at the history, it's all jacked. I'm like, when do you ever look back at the history? And that's a serious question. Uh, when you do, do you ever? Right, if you do it right, then you can pretty much just generate a change log based off of the commits that are going to be from the last tag to the, the tag that you're creating. And, and you have it all nicely laid out there. The other thing I like about that is... Um, removing or squashing commits that are or not removing them but you can use fix up or squash to remove them from the history keeping their work um but you you remove commits that don't matter if you have a lot of broken stuff or a lot of wip work in progress commits which sometimes i'll do admittedly um i never want those to go back into develop or or for anyone to ever actually see those those are just for me to save my work and push it up at the end of the day so that if my computer explodes, which is imminent, <laughs> um, it doesn't it doesn't cause me to lose any work, you know. But but at, when when things are done, then I can remove all of those commits and just leave in the commit or commits that get a feature done, or or that are meaningful in some other way. Uh, the other thing, the other reason that I think that rebase is preferred over um, merge, and I could be totally wrong on this, but when I think about Git bisect, and I've used Git bisect quite a bit, and that basically lets you um, tell Git when code is bad, and let it, and then give it a commit ID of a commit where this fix was was good, where where things worked, and so you could say like things are broken on master, but they worked ten commits ago, and you can use Git bisect, and it will pick a commit in the middle, and then you can test it and say yes, this is good or bad. And it will just do a binary search and pick the next one at either the top or the bottom uh, and let you go from there. And I feel like if it if you have a lot of merge commits or if you have a lot of duplicated commits or uh, other issues like that, 
it makes git bisect less useful because it or it makes it harder to use because it's going to you're going to be searching through commits or you're going to have to search through commits that were on the in these merges and just causing more problems like that but i could be totally wrong about how i'm thinking about that but that just in my mind that's one tangible reason why i would want a cleaner history as opposed to just branches and merge commits everywhere yeah the only the only negative i see about force pushing and things like that is whenever you whenever you do something that requires a force push like a get rebase um you're you're gonna have to tell everybody else on your team you know i just force pushed you guys have to you guys have to now pull down and and you know cherry pick whatever you're doing or or rebase in what you've been doing into my my new uh reality basically yep um so that creates more work for them true that is true and i screw those guys though maybe the (laughs) yeah they ain't me Not my problem. I, I was listening to another podcast where they were talking about <laughs> Git strategies and such, and they they talk they mentioned that they never do that. They don't like rewriting history, and it just seemed it, it was weird to say, but it seemed so amateur the way that they were using Git. And I don't think that what we're doing is advanced by any means, but it just it does take a little bit more work. And maybe it's it's the the dynamic of the team. I feel like people here know Git really well. Um, you know, we're, we're pretty confident in, in rewriting history and knowing how to get back to a good state if we need to. Uh, but also, we tend to work on smaller teams. You know, I'm working on a team yeah. of four developers right now. So when I have to tell, when I rebase and change history, I only have to tell a few developers. It's not like I have to tell a team of 20 or 30 developers, hey, I just changed everything out from under you. Go have fun with the rest of the day. Uh, it's, you know, they're, they're much smaller changes, and usually they don't, they don't really affect as much because there's only four of us and we're in different areas anyway. So the history that's been rewritten is pretty easy to, uh, it's pretty easy for us to reapply our commits on top because, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of in separate areas, not really conflicting with each other too much. Sure. So if you were going to, if you were going to rebase and squash your commits anyway, and your develop branch before you go back to master or, or whatever your master type branch is, um, couldn't you just merge it and then squash it all and then send it over to to master when you're ready and still maintain that that history at least on master? Yeah, you could definitely. I think, um, and that would probably be easier. Um, I'm trying to think of why we haven't been doing that. There's probably yeah, something because nobody understands <laughs> get. There's probably it, some it would good be reason. a lot. I think it would be a lot harder when we actually get to that point when it's not fresh in my mind. You know, what commits matter? Uh, what, what what commit logs matter to keep around uh, later on? And, and removing that all in kind of a, a bulk, at a bulk time before it gets merged back down is, is uh, probably, I don't know, it seems harder just thinking about it. But alternatively, I would just say that try not to have this go on try and uh just stick to you know a you can have a develop branch and then feature branches but when you start branching off of those feature branches and then so many things are in flux at one time spread across so many branches that you need to coordinate things get complicated and i don't think there's you know merging is not going to solve that really this doesn't solve it i mean it helps us but it's still a challenge um 
So it's it's just it, it's uh, you know it, it's just caused by by our workflow right now. We have so many things yeah. that that rely on different pieces, and we have to coordinate them across branches. Unfortunately, yeah, I think that's just um, so. You know, if we can, it's just uh, you know, to wrap things up here, we're running a little bit long. Um, I, I think that this is just a really good um, place to say that you know it's good to have. Uh, rules on your team about what you should and shouldn't do, coding practices, coding style, um, and being as consistent as possible, but that there there are going to be times where you can um, or you need to uh, break the rules um, and yeah. getting your team on the same page about when that's okay and when it's not and why and having a solid understanding of, hey, it's not just because this is easier for me, so screw you guys. Like, There's a real reason and you know, it's well understood and it's minimally impactful and that's good. I think being dogmatic about anything is bad, which is in itself a dogmatic quote. Um, and <laughs> you know, like yeah, for sure. And, and I'll just say one more thing. Like, just don't be afraid to try things. It's, it's actually really hard to lose history and get, um, so don't be afraid to try things. And, uh, but, but on top of everything, it works because our, our our team communicates really well. So we, we can do yeah. things like that and it doesn't really affect anyone. It's not like I do this and then I cause every other developer on the team to, to lose a day of productivity while they fix things. It doesn't happen like that. So it works in our team. Whatever works in your team uh, may vary, but it's just good to become familiar with all of these different facets of, of the version control tool that we're using. Yeah. And to Nick's point about not losing work and it's very hard to lose work, there there is a shadow tree that exists in, in Get with all the pruned uh, branches that you can go through. And I never have to remember the command because I'm always in a panic and looking it up anyway because I screwed something <laughs> up. So the docs will be in front of you. Just you know, know that it's there. <laughs> yeah. Do you know how I use Git whenever things get messed up? I, I just I just do the nuclear option. I delete everything and I pull again. I redo the work that I, or I, I, I copy the files out that I changed. I put them back. It's, you know, cause I don't understand it enough and I get so angry. And then I just say, you know what? I'm just going to nuke this and start over one day though. I'll actually learn how to solve things the right way. Um, because I'm pretty sure that I've reached the point now where I've spent more time redoing it than it to, would take me to do it, to figure it all out and learn it the right way. It's just that every time that comes up, it's like a two minute fix versus 30 minutes of reading and understanding. So I always go with the two minute one, but now I've probably used about 900 minutes. Um, so don't be like me. That's the lesson of the day. <laughs> okay, guys. Uh, thank you very much. Um, except for Neil who decided to be with his family or something like whatever. Um, until next time, this has been your, um, your trip to crazy time land. What? Oh yeah. Who says that? I'm cutting that out. That was stupid. I was going somewhere with that. I forgot what it was. I panicked. I nuked it. And this is where I ended up. Thanks, guys. You can just reclone. Reclone. That's right. Okay. Bye. I was rolling down the window. Cause I like to feel the wind blow We got a good thing Gonna see where the day goes Take it fast, take it real slow We got a good